And for our reflection this afternoon, I invite you to First John, the epistle of First John, and we'll read the first chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Unlike a typical New Testament epistle, 1 John does not begin by identifying the author or his addressees. It has no opening greeting, cutting to the chase, so to speak. John calls attention to what he calls the word of life. And I say John, I really should say the writer, because our knowing that it's John really comes, as I will show you, that the beginning, the first few verses of this chapter is very much similar to the Gospel of John. And because of that, we can say John was the author. I believe John was the writer. He was the one who penned this epistle. And as we read this epistle, we find John stating the believers in Christ at least seven reasons why he wrote this epistle. And I'll just list them for you. John writes this epistle to facilitate fellowship one with another and with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 3. He writes to inspire joy to the fullest, verse 4 of chapter 1. He writes, according to chapter 2, verse 1, to deter believers from sinning. Fourthly, to encourage love among the brethren, chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. Fifthly, to demonstrate the reality of salvation, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Sixthly, to protect believers from false, deceptive teachers, chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. And seventhly, to foster personal assurance of salvation. Now, those are the stated purposes of this epistle. And um, perhaps what we'll do over the course of uh, Sunday afternoons is to go through this epistle of First John. And I think it's very important we do because John gives us a handle on what biblical Christianity is all about how we can be sure of our relationship with God, what are the identifying features of those who are truly saved. And here in chapter 1, 
John seems to be primarily concerned with the subject of fellowship. Of fellowship with God, which provides the basis for fellowship with other believers. And even as we speak of fellowship, the question becomes, what exactly do we mean when we speak of fellowship, Christian fellowship? Among Christians, the term fellowship is quite often used in a loose, generalized way to mean, among other things, having a good time together over coffee, tea, a meal, or some recreational activity. I want to say, for example, yesterday, we had a wonderful time of fellowship, and I'm using the word in a very good sense. But while we need to note this, that while these activities, useful as they are and expressive of fellowship as they might be, they do not necessarily, and notice, they do not necessarily constitute Christian fellowship biblically understood. The fact is, one could engage in these things, having a good time together as Christians, eating, drinking, doing a lot of good, fun stuff together, and yet not have fellowship. And it's also possible that these things can be absent, and yet there is fellowship. In fact, there might be vast geographical distance between believers, and yet believers over vast distances are enjoying fellowship with one another. In a homely way, someone has described or defined fellowship as two or more fellows in the same ship. And homely as this definition of fellowship is, it does, I would say, bear some semblance to the biblical idea behind the word fellowship. Because really, the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia, which means common, that word speaks of that which is held in common, so that fellowship in the biblical sense, we could say, connotes that commonality, that communion, which believers in Christ hold in common, in which they share or participate Together. So when we talk about Christian fellowship from the biblical perspective, the essential idea of fellowship concerns a commonality of interest. And specifically, it is a commonality of interest surrounding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, surrounding the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perhaps the most vivid and practical illustration of Christian fellowship we have in the entire Word of God is that found in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 46, where Luke states regarding the early believers, the believers of the early decades of the church, here's what Luke says of them. He says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. See the idea there of fellowship. It is holding certain things in common. He says, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many as had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their homes with glad and generous hearts. These group of Christians, what were they doing they were worshiping together, they were socializing together, and of course, all of these things were done in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at the subject of Christian fellowship as it's set forth here in 1 John chapter 1. 
And bear in mind that for John, Christian fellowship is predicated first and foremost on fellowship with God. In other words, there is no such thing as Christian fellowship where believers in Christ are themselves individually unless they are fellowshipping with God. If a believer is not fellowshipping with God, if a believer is not fellowshipping with Christ, he or she cannot truly have fellowship with other believers. There can be no such thing as fellowship among Christians where there is not first fellowship with God. And to prove that, notice in verse 3 the correlation between fellowship among believers and fellowship with God. Verse 3, John writes, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So right there, John links fellowship with God with fellowship with other believers. Notice also verses 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. There is a point of debate as to whether the fellowship with one another there is between the believer and God or does it include believers as well? And I would say it includes believers as well, based on what he had already said in verse 3. He says, truly our fellowship is with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. And John is writing that you too may have fellowship with us. Now in examining this chapter, we find that Christian fellowship is rooted in at least two fundamental realities. Two fundamental realities. And I would say where these are absent, there is no Christian fellowship. First of all, Christian fellowship is rooted in the reality of an eternal yet historical Savior. Christian fellowship is rooted in the reality of an eternal yet historical Savior. Now, right off the bat, that may seem abstract, but let's get into it. And here's a point that John makes in verses 1 to 3, and we'll break this apart to show what we mean when we say it's rooted, Christian fellowship is rooted in the reality of an eternal yet historical Savior. Here's what John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, how will these verses make sense to us? And follow the line of discussion this afternoon. Notice in these verses, John takes great pains, as it were, to emphasize the truth of Christ's pre-existence. The fact that he is the divine, eternal Son of God. And that not only is he the divine, eternal Son of God, but that he did 
in fact, step into human history becoming a real, actual, bona fide human being. John speaks of having been acquainted with him. He describes the Lord Jesus as the word of life. And John says we have seen him with our eyes. John is emphatically clear that he and his fellow apostles did not see Jesus in a visionary, mystical sense, but in a real, literal, physical way. Notice in addition, he says this, we have looked upon him. So we did not just see him with our eyes, but we stared at him. We gazed at him. And the word John uses there carries the idea of looking intently at something, to look at it continually, often, as Loa and Nida puts it, with the implication that what is observed is something unusual. John goes on to say of Christ, the word of life, which we have touched with our hands. He says we handled him, we touched him. In fact, John, who wrote this epistle, you recall from the gospel, was the one who was always found doing what? Leaning on Jesus' bosom. Leaning on the bosom of the Lord Jesus. And he then, by way of restatement, records the following. He says this, the life was manifest. He's basically restating what he has already said. The life was manifest. That is, what, what is he referring to? The incarnation. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Here's what he says in conclusion. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. And clearly, John is intent on establishing that the Lord Jesus Christ was not some kind of phantom. He was not a spirit, as some religions teach. John says that we looked at him, we saw him with our own eyes, we touched him, he says the life was evident, it was manifest among us. Now question, why did John go into such detail? Remember what is the point we are making. If we are to have fellowship with God, John is saying, and if we are to have fellowship with one another, we have to subscribe to the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ is divinely the Son of God, he's the Son of God, he's the divine Son of God, that he is eternal, and although he is eternal, although he is divine, he is yet a human being, a literal human being who came into history, took on human flesh, and walked this earth as a man. Why did John go into such painstaking detail? You see, in John's day, in fact, at the time John was writing, there was a sect known as the Gnostics, and the Gnostics in fact, the word Gnostic and its cognate Gnosticism, you have heard of that term, derived from the Greek word, which means knowledge. And for the Gnostics, salvation and a favorable relationship with God was based on some secret knowledge that would give one access to the true God. In other words, to come into a knowledge of the true God, one had to be privy to a password of sorts. One had to be initiated into the mysteries of this God. And by the way, this knowledge was restricted just to an elite class, the spiritual. 
Gnosticism held that everything material, everything physical was evil. Anything that, that smacked of the material, the physical, the material was evil, which is to say that this created order, this world as we know it, this physical world as we know it was an evil entity. And what that therefore meant is this, that a good God could not have created this world. The good God, Gnosticism held, was the God of pure spirit. He had nothing to do with anything physical. Of course, you can see where John is going with this, the implication for the Lord Jesus Christ, because if everything physical and material is evil, then that has serious implications for the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his humanity. What that therefore meant was that the incarnate Christ, as proclaimed by the apostles, as proclaimed through the gospel, could not be the true divine savior. And so to have salvation, to come into a knowledge, into a relationship with the true God, namely the God of pure spirit, here's how the Gnostics got to the God of pure spirit. They had to go through a series of emanations from the God of pure spirit, and that series of emanations were known as demiurges. They had to go through these intermediaries in order to get to the God of pure spirit. And interestingly, and not surprising, because the Gnostics regarded everything physical and material as evil, it naturally meant that the body was therefore what? Evil. And because the body was evil, it meant therefore that they could basically do anything with it. They could live anyhow. It didn't really matter because after all, there's nothing good about this body. So therefore, what happened was this. Gnosticism promoted a lifestyle of licentiousness, of sexual immorality. In other words, one could indulge in all kinds of sins, and that would be no big deal. Why? Because the most important thing was a connection with God. As long as we have this secret knowledge that we can access the God of pure spirit, then it didn't really matter how one lived. You can actually hear this Gnostic strain in some of today's profession of spirituality. You confront some people with their sins and they'll respond something like this. You may see me living this way, but don't watch my life. I have a connection with God. Have you ever heard that? Don't judge me. Don't watch my, don't watch my life. I have a relationship with God. That is Gnosticism right there. And so by its very nature, Gnosticism, we could say, then promoted a libertine, licentious lifestyle, an unrestrained life of sin. In short, Gnosticism professed religion without righteousness, contemplation of the mystical without transformation of heart and mind. And of course, the logical outworking of Gnosticism was a complete discounting and denial of the person and redemptive work of Christ. It means then Christ's death had no saving significance because to begin with the body was evil. Christ could not have been the good God because he partook of physicality. And so therefore they discounted that gospel. 
And these were the very issues John was addressing in this epistle. So first of all, what John is doing in verses 1 to 3, we could say then is this. John is establishing from the outset that that which provides the basis of true Christian fellowship is the reality of a personal divine Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal word of life who entered into human history, having become flesh, walked among humans, was seen by them, was touched by them. Hence, a Savior who is knowable, a Savior who is accessible, a Savior who affords us real, living, saving knowledge of God. In effect, John underscores the blessed truth that teaching as proclaimed by the apostles was not privately contrived like those of the esoteric mystery religions. The Lord Jesus was made manifest as the divine Son of God. He was a real, literal person, and through his life, through his death, we have eternal life, is what John is contending. Now, this is precisely why, as Christians, you and I cannot have fellowship with those who hold to a different Christ. That is why, for example, we could not have fellowship with Christian scientists. We could not have fellowship with New Agers because as far as New Agers are concerned, it's not important whether Jesus was a real historical person. What is most important for Christian science, what is most important for New Age thinking is the Christ spirit. In fact, one theologian of the past, Rudolf Bultmann, had this point whereby the historical Jesus was not that important. In fact, Bultmann went as far as to say that if he could find today the bones of the Lord Jesus, he still would believe in the resurrection of Christ because what's important is not the physical Christ. What is important is the Christ within. And that is heresy. That is deadly heresy. That is heretical, that is false teaching, and there can be no salvation where the person of Christ is not accepted as found in Scripture. That is why we cannot regard as brothers and sisters in Christ those who subscribe to a vague, nondescript spirituality that professes belief in God, yet will not profess faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why we cannot have fellowship with those who claim to have a live and direct communion with God while by passing the mediator, the one mediator between God and man, there is the man Jesus Christ who, according to the word of God, gave his life a ransom. The one who is himself the very revelation of God according to Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. In fact, John is going to be adamant on this point that we cannot have fellowship with those who do not embrace the person of Christ, the work of Christ. He says in 2 John verses 9 and 10, here's what he says. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him anything. For John, John is adamant that one may be very religious, one may even subscribe to the existence of God. Yet, if there's no acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus, if there's no understanding that God is revealed and can only be known through his son, Jesus Christ, then such religion is idolatry. That is why Islam is idolatry. 
That is why Judaism, as, as practiced today, is idolatry. Why? Because unless the true God is embraced, namely 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, remember what the Apostle John says there. He says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. And he says this, this, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the true God and life eternal. John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And that Christ we are going to embrace if we must have eternal life, if we must come into saving favor, saving relations with God, must be the historical Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. It must be the Christ who came into this world as a babe, a Christ who lived on this world for over three decades, who went to the cross, shed his blood, died for sins, rose again, and is now in heaven. If one does not subscribe to those fundamental cardinal doctrines of the faith, then there is no fellowship with God, and there is no such thing as Christian fellowship. Now in the second place, and this is our final point this afternoon, according to John, Christian fellowship is rooted not only in the reality of a divine yet historical Savior, but Christian fellowship is rooted in the reality of God's holy standards. Christian fellowship is rooted in the reality of God's holy standards, verses 5 through 10. How do we have fellowship with God and with one another according to John? Notice verses 5 through 10. First of all, verse 5 we have fellowship with God and with one another by recognizing the holy and righteous character of God. Notice what he says here in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, light stands in scripture as a metaphor of various things. In scripture, light is metaphorically used to describe salvation, as in Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. At times, light is used of God's revelation and guidance, as in Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, light unto my path. Also, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 speaks of the word of God as a light, he says, to which you do well to take heed until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. As well, light at times refers to the moral goodness. It refers to moral goodness in contrast to evil, which symbolizes darkness. Woe to those who put light for darkness, the prophet Isaiah says. And that God is said to be light here in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 refers to his morally pure character. John is suggesting here, he's saying here in other words, that God is holy. He's a holy God. Yes, he is revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus, which you Gnostics say is evil. Body is evil, material is evil, therefore Jesus could not be the good God. Well, here's what he says. This God who manifested himself in the Lord Jesus is holy. In him is no darkness at all. What is the implication there? We cannot live anyhow we please. We cannot be like the Gnostics 
who believe or subscribe to the notion that being saved is all a matter of what we know, irrespective of how we live. John says, in order for us to have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another, we must come to grips with God's holy standard. And top of that list, we must recognize the holiness and purity of God. No fellowship where there is no recognition of his holiness. Secondly, we have fellowship with God and with one another. Notice verses 6 and 7. By withdrawing from the path of sin. By withdrawing from the path of sin. Here's what he says. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son cleanses us from all sins. John is saying here, adamant is, adamant is saying here, that there can be no fellowship with God where there is a dabbling in sin and with sin. Second Timothy 1 verse 9 tells us that in saving us, God saved us and called us with a holy calling. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14, we were redeemed looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that to redeem us from all iniquities and to purify for himself a people being zealous of good works. Ephesians 1 verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. No recognition of God's holiness, no fellowship. Walking in sin, no fellowship. We must steer clear of sin. Now, we're not talking about sinless perfection, as we said this morning. What we're talking about is a decided walk away from sin, knowing that in saving us, God called us to a life of holiness, a call to a life to be like him. Thirdly, we have fellowship with God and with one another, John teaches, by cleansing through the blood, by being cleansed through the blood of Christ. He says, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. John is saying here this, that as we are walking with Christ, as we are walking with God in the light, as he himself is in the light, we are having fellowship with one another. We are having fellowship with God. We are having fellowship with one another. And he's saying what is happening in the same breath is that the blood of Jesus Christ, present continuous set tense, keeps on cleansing us from all on righteousness. You see, Jesus Christ shed his blood, and his blood not only washed us from our sins, but his blood continued to wash us daily from the filthiness of the flesh, from sin. Whenever we sin and we confess to God, he says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. Fellowship can only be maintained where there's cleansing from sin. And then, fourthly, we have fellowship with God and with one another, John suggests, verses 8 and 10, by coming clean with God regarding our sins. By coming clean with God regarding our sins. He says, therefore, we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Who made such a claim? The Gnostics. They deny the reality of sin. We have no sin. We stand neutral in relation to what you would call sin, they said, you know, because as far as we are concerned, we can do anything 
with this body. But John says, no, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. To have fellowship with God, we must come clean with God where we are honest before him. We do not deny the reality of sin in our lives just as we do not practice sin. And then finally, we have fellowship with God and with one another by confession of our sins to God, by confessing our sins to God. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't it comforting to know, here's God's standard, high, holy, we never get to the point in this life where we are free from sin. God holds us nevertheless to a high standard. And the wonderful thing is that by his grace, he has made provision whereby when we sin, we can find cleansing and we can find restoration, restoration to fellowship. And that's what the epistle of John is all about. We're going to be reading through this epistle as I said, we'll attempt to do that on Sunday afternoons. And we trust that as we go through reading this book, God would use it in a tremendous way to bless and edify our lives to his glory.